Hello again! Welcome back to Love and Friendship. Uh, last time we ran a little long, didn't manage to get to talk about Agathon's speech in the symposium, so we didn't quite finish the first half. Uh, but we did get to talk a lot about Greek culture and exactly what their assumptions would be coming to this text. Um, now we need to talk about Agathon, and we need so badly to talk about Socrates. Um, obviously the entire back half of this text is preoccupied with Socrates' argument, his discussion with Diatima especially, and then Alcibiades coming in and just being even more obsessed with Socrates. Um, this is an all-Socrates show, as much as we've managed to like keep him at a distance for the first half of the text. Um, but first, Agathon. Um, so we talked last time about how every single one of these various speeches is radically different from all of the others, um, and how they all sort of interconnect in certain ways, but also move in different directions and are sort of told in different fashions. Um, it should be obvious, even from the translation or the translation here, that the styles are also radically different. Um, like Phaedrus and uh, Phaedrus is obviously very measured. Whereas, you know, Pausanias has that sort of weirdness to it, like you're, you're always suspicious that he's trying to slip something by you. Um, Eryximachus is very sort of rote and mechanical, um, and Aristophanes is very playful in his delivery. Agathon is probably the most direct encomium of love we're going to get here. Um, what Agathon sort of draws attention to right at the outset of his speech is that he... For all of these speeches that we've heard so far, and at this point we have heard, like, four of them, um, nobody has actually been praising love the god itself. Like, uh, everybody has instead been focusing on the interactions, love as it manifests between people. Um, Phaedrus has been emphasizing the way that young men are sort of, you know, shamed and proud before their, their lovers. Pausanias has been emphasizing the individual sort of connection between a lover and their beloved. Um, Aristophanes has this whole long-winded myth, but the figure of love, the god, doesn't even appear in it. Um, and Eryximachus, like, love for him is so sort of mundane and reduced to this relational uh thing that, like, it, it has no personhood. Um, so Agathon instead focuses entirely on the personhood of the god. And it actually makes for a fairly boring speech, honestly. Like, Aristophanes' speech was actually kind of way more dynamic and interesting. Um, Agathon instead is emphasizing, you know, he, he's delivering a very traditional encomium, as he says, um, the proper tactics for us too in dealing with love are first to praise his nature and then his gifts, and then he does. Like, here, are, here is his nature in extensive detail, and then here are the gifts um, that he gives to, to human beings. But the emphasis is, again, on him as God, making these as personal choices. Um, and he's pretty comprehensive here. Um, the trick, though, is this is not the way that he, that love, is usually characterized in Greek myth. Um, remember, we have seen a couple of our speakers talk about love, the god, very scantily, though. Um, so Phaedrus talks about how god, uh, Eros was this 
you know, primordial god who is not understood, is mysterious, the way that Hesiod presents him, how he, you know, predates all of the Olympian gods, and he's very much just inscrutable to the Greeks. Um, and then Pausanias sort of expands on that and talks about how there's like two different Erases, the one that Hesiod talks about, the one that Homer talks about, and therefore two Aphrodites as well. Um, but none, none of the ones that have been talked about, either, you know, inscrutable celestial eros or vulgar common eros, have been presented as though they have all of these glories. You know, Agathon talks about the that love is beautiful, sensitive, young, like eternally young, um, dwells in the, the minds and hearts of human beings, like, like soft places. Um, it, it's fluid, adaptable, like there's, love is gracious and kind, beautiful, good, fair, just, self-disciplined, courageous. Like over the course of his speech, he attributes all of these characteristics to love, but Eros, the mysterious primordial god, like this wouldn't necessarily apply to Eros as described by Phaedrus or by Hesiod for that matter. Um, like, as much as Hesiod sort of positions Eros as this important primordial god, sort of predating all of these other gods and therefore sort of enabling them to bring about other gods through their copulation, i.e. Eros sort of fosters the creation of the entire universe, according to Hesiod and Phaedrus by extension, you know, that force, that force is more in line with what Eryximachus is describing. You know, this kind of attractive force among all the physical objects of the universe, not someone who is gracious or kind or wise or just. This is inexorable. This is love as this sort of blind force of the universe, like gravity. Like, you wouldn't describe the force of gravity as being kind or generous, wise or just, just that it binds us all together. Um, so Agathon, as much as he is sort of praising love in this form, praises him in a way that is kind of trite. Um, and this is a little strange. Like, on the one hand, we should kind of expect this. Remember, Agathon is a playwright. He has just won the tragedy. Um, he is accomplished. He is artistic. Um, and he is attributing these characteristics to love in a sort of personifying artistic way. But it is, at the end of the day, fiction. Um, it makes a certain sort of sense insofar as, you know, we would expect that since love is usually bound up with youth and attractiveness, that love would therefore also be young and attractive. Um, that, you know, uh, love in being sort of, like, important to our lives would have these characteristics of wisdom and justice. Um, but at the same time, you know, think of both of the loves that we've talked about. Love has frequently been unfair. Love has frequently been unjust um, and often unwise. In many of the myths that sort of feature love affairs, it's emphasized by the Greeks that love sort of strikes you unawares and cause you to, causes you to do really horrible things. Um, Homer and Hesiod and many of the other Greek myth writers sort of have as a, as a constant refrain that beautiful women are dangerous. Um, like the entire Trojan War, the story of that whole cycle starts with Helen, the most beautiful woman ever, being abducted by Paris away from her husband and this leading to dire consequences. 
Um, and the Greeks very much sort of internalized this. They saw love as powerful and dangerous, frequently unwise, causing strife and horror and harm. Um, like, that's often how they view women in general. That Like, Hesiod even has a very explicit passage in his works and days where he talks about, like, women as this vicious, seductive monster that was only created to cause harm to human beings. Like, she is presented as a temptress, and uh, that, like, men will throw themselves at her and destroy themselves for her sake, and ultimately she's just going to, like, sit at home and eat his food and swill his booze and not ever contribute anything terribly productive. P.S. If it isn't obvious, the Greeks were horrible misogynists. I'm not going to try and downplay that. Um, but it's important to notice that this is bound up with their idea of love. Love also causes human beings to do really dumb things, to sort of sacrifice themselves pointlessly. What Agathon is doing here is he's practically coining a new god, um, charged with the task of taking love, this you know primordial unknown force, um, and focusing entirely on its good qualities or you know its power. Agathon instead turns love into something more poetic than is appropriate. And there's something kind of smart about this. Like, Plato is doing something fairly devious and really rather clever. Um, you know, you think of all of the poetry that has been written on the subject of love, like every song that you can hear come up on the radio or, you know, on Spotify that involves, like, you know, I fell in love with this woman and now she's like everything that I, and, and you know, my life is so much better. And, like, it's even sort of an axiom that when you fall in love, all the songs suddenly make sense. Um, but if anything, the sort of underlying truth to that maxim is that love, again, puts us in this state where we don't recognize the truth of things. You know, when we are in love, we see the world with rose-tinted glasses, we say, um, as though, you know, the, the faults of the person we love aren't visible to us. We are blind to them. And Agathon is in love with love. Like, Agathon is presenting a love that has no faults, that has no darkness to it, that is not mysterious and, you know, potentially malevolent, but rather a love that is only good, only beautiful, and therefore he's being a little deceptive. Um, Socrates even calls him out on this. Like, he, he's, before Socrates starts his speech, he stresses, um, he apparently was confused about what we were doing today. Um, everybody said, we're going to eulogize love, which Socrates meant we're going to focus on, or what Socrates thought meant we're going to focus on love's good qualities and sort of praise them. But notice his, his little paragraph here on page 37. Um, that was when I realized what a fool I was to have agreed to join in and deliver a eulogy of love when it came to my turn and to have claimed expertise in the matter, in the ways of love, when in fact I didn't have the slightest clue about the matter, that is, about how I was supposed to go about this eulogy. I was so naive that I thought the point of any eulogy was to tell the truth about the subject. I thought that with the truth before you, you were supposed to select from among the facts that facts, the ones that were most to your subject's credit, and then present them so as to show him in the best possible light. I was very confident in my ability to give a good speech, on the grounds that I knew the truth about how to deliver eulogies, but it now looks as though this isn't the way to deliver a proper eulogy after all. 
What you do is describe your subject in the most generous and glowing terms, whether or not there's any truth to them. It needn't bother if you bother you if you're making it up. Our assignment apparently means that each of us is to deliver a specious eulogy of love rather than to actually praise him. I suppose that's why you all go to such extreme lengths to argue for the ascription of qualities to love, to claim that he is like this and responsible for that. Notice what Socrates is suggesting here. And notice how he does it as well, because this is very typical of Socratic method. Notice that he starts by putting himself down. I was confused, Socrates says. I was ignorant. I did not realize, assuming that the right thing is what everybody has been doing, was that we were going to tell tall tales about love, that we were going to make up good things and then attribute them to love. What Socrates is suggesting here is that everyone who has gone before is a liar. Um, that's the insinuation. But the way that he's presenting it puts puts it as though everyone who did tell lies about love was in the right. As though, you know, the entire goal of today's activity was to make up horrible lies that actually present love as though it's this perfect, beautiful, wonderful thing. Whereas Socrates is instead looking at love as though it's this negative thing, but we're going to try and put a positive spin on it. Um, so notice the, the sort of dynamic here. Notice what Plato is doing, as well as what Socrates is doing, as well as this accusation. In a sense, Socrates is right. Everyone has been telling lies about love, and Agathon most obviously of all. But it's sort of appropriate that Agathon has told lies about love. Poets always lie about love. They always, you know, sort of capture the feeling of being swept away by love without necessarily recounting all of the horrible things that happen as a consequence. Just like all those love songs, they seem to end quite abruptly when things would normally go wrong, or they don't bother to talk about those things, and when they do, they concentrate on those things to the exclusion of everything else, and it's just another kind of lie. Instead, what Plato and what Socrates is looking for here is a complete description. Love in all of its forms. Good, bad, ugly, beautiful and otherwise. And what we get from Socrates isn't exactly that. Like, his description of what's going on with diatima has a sort of very different bent, like a very philosophical, a very Socratic bent, but a very different bent nonetheless. But it does emphasize a lot of love's bad qualities in the process. Namely, love desires things, doesn't have things, is about being in a state of wishing you had something rather than actually having it. And by this light, again, it very much reveals that Agathon is in love with love. Like, Socrates even drives this home um, in their little back and forth initially. Um, what he emphasizes right at the outset, he asks, um, is it not one of love's characteristics to stand in relation to something? This is page 38 in that big paragraph in the center. I'm not asking whether love is related to some mother or father. It would be ridiculous of me to ask whether love is of a mother or a father in this sense. No, suppose I'd actually ask my question about father, whether or not a father is a father of someone. The proper answer, if you wanted to give it, would surely be that a father is a father of a son or a daughter. So he's drawing this parallel, like we call people fathers not because they have something like internally, but because they are a father of somebody. They are a father of a daughter or father of a son. So what Socrates then goes on to ask is, what does love love? We call it love because it is in love with what? And this is completely in contradistinction to what 
Agathon was talking about. Um, he emphasizes instead that love wants something, lacks something, doesn't have something. Agathon has emphasized all the thing that all of these things that love supposedly has. Love is beautiful. Love is wise. Love is just. Love is good. Socrates instead says love at its foundation is a relationship to something we want, not something we have. And therefore love, the god, would be more accurately described as something that lacks things, lacks these virtues, lacks these qualities that we admire, rather than having them. And finally, he gets really kind of sneaky on page 41, where he's, where he's finally kind of backed Agathon into a corner and forced Agathon to admit that it would appear that love wants beauty and doesn't have it, that love isn't itself beautiful, but rather needs beauty to complete it. And he f follows up by saying, um, if this is how things stand, then do you still maintain that love is attractive? And Agathon is forced to admit, it rather looks as though I didn't know what I was talking about before, Socrates. And Socrates drives the dagger home, and yet you still gave an attractive speech, Agathon. Notice what he's saying here. Agathon is presenting something beautiful, has this beautiful thing, but doesn't actually know what he's talking about. It's an empty, pretty thing. It has no truth in it. Again, because Agathon is in love with love. Agathon doesn't have love, but he does have beauty. So he is instead in love with love because he is wanting love, in the same way that love is, by its very nature, lacking something that it wants. So Socrates, without offending anyone, like, notice how polite he is through this whole process. Notice how he sort of brings Agathon around to his way of thinking without ever accusing him of being wrong or suggesting that it you know, what he did was a lie. Instead, he just sort of leads Agathon to this own conclusion, and with his insinuations and sort of second level of the discussion, manages to make clear that what, what Agathon has done here. Um, you kind of have to wonder if Socrates, given more time in the dialogue, couldn't do the same thing to everybody couldn't show that Phaedrus and Pausanias and Eryximachus and Aristophanes are also kind of not getting at the core of love, missing important elements. In that sense, there is a very clear progression here. Like, on the one hand, Agathon was totally right when he started out by saying, guys, nobody here has actually done what we proposed to do. Nobody, in fact, delivered an encomium of love. Everyone instead focused instead on the gifts that they were given. But in another sense, each of them have. Like, notice that the encomium structure, as it's been presented, is to praise the qualities of the thing and then praise how that thing benefits us, how that god benefits us. And in some way, everyone has. Like, Phaedrus starts by saying, you know, here is the nature of love as Hesiod talks about it. Here is how that interacts in human relationships and how good that is for the society. Pausanias starts by talking about, like, the two forms of love, how there's good and bad. And then he moves on to talk about why the good love is best. Um, Eryximachus talks about love as this attractive force and then shows how it exists in all of nature. Even Aristophanes, as weird as his encomium is, because it is just this myth, talks about the state of wholeness and then explains how 
we are aspiring to to that state of wholeness and how love is giving us access to that state of wholeness. Agathon too very explicitly says, here are all of love's good qualities, here is how it benefits human beings. And Socrates, even as he re like even as he calls Agathon out for being a liar, just as Agathon called everybody else out for being a liar, they're also doing the same work. It is simultaneously lie and truth, calling out of those who came before and being of one part with them. It's very strange in that sense, and I don't want to sort of miss this. Um, the fact that each of these speeches simultaneously does the work and fails to do the work. Does what they set out to do and fails to do what they set out to do. Thus setting the stage for Agathon to correct everyone and Socrates to correct Agathon. It's a really strange dynamic, fascinating in its own way, and it gives us an even greater insight into what love actually is at the end of the day because we've seen all of these different attitudes, all of these different perspectives, and how each one of them is in some way incomplete without the others. But now we need to talk about Socrates. Um, first off, here is like this part of the dialogue where, you know, Socrates is having his conversation with Agathon, and then when Socrates, like, has his own sort of internal monologue conversation with Diatima, this is classic platonic dialogue. Um, like, this is the most recognizably platonic part of the symposium, and you can just as easily read the Mino or the Phaedrus or the Phaedo or the Euthyphro or any of the other uh, platonic dialogues and see something very similar, this back and forth. Um, and notice, once again, we have this sort of teacher-student relationship in both cases. Um, first, Socrates sort of asks Agathon questions and sort of draws Agathon into his own perspective. And notice that this is also very Socratic, that the teacher asks the questions and leads the student to the conclusion that the teacher is sort of guiding him toward. But all under the auspices of the fact that the teacher doesn't actually know something. It's the student who actually has the information, it's just the teacher's job to draw it out of them. Likewise, the same relationship takes place with Diatima and Socrates in that part of the dialogue. Diatima presents herself as the sage of wisdom, and Socrates is constantly trying to get her wisdom from her, but Diatima stresses that she and Socrates know exactly the same information. All she has to do is show Socrates that, she are, that he already knows these things. So it is often presented in this, um, in this sort of paradigm where, like, Diatima is like, you agree with me, and Socrates is like, I don't know whether I agree with you, I don't even know where, what you're talking about. Diatima is like, well then follow my logic, and I'll show you. I'll show you that you agree with me. I'll show you that you think that love is empty. I'll show you that you think that love wants beauty, that it wants immortality, and so on and so forth. This is very typical of Platonic dialogues and very typical of Socratic method within those Platonic dialogues. Um, but I also want to stress not just sort of how Plato presents uh, the Platonic method or the Socratic method in these dialogues, but also sort of the truth behind that insofar as we can get at it. Um, we haven't really discussed this at this point, not in the lectures online anyway, um, but all of the Socratic dialogues and all the characters that we're bumping into in these Platonic dialogues are actual Athenians, like people who were actually alive and actually did bump into each other and have long conversations. Um, this is not fiction. 
Um, these are not characters in the same sense that the characters in a novel are a characters. All of these people were actually, you know, upper class citizens of Athens in Socrates' time. Um, and some of these conversations are well documented, even in places outside of the Platonic dialogues. Um, Aristophanes, in addition to being one of our characters in the symposium, actually has a play where he makes fun of Socrates and a bunch of the other sort of philosophers of the time um, in this play called The Clouds, uh, where he's sort of like teasing all of this abstract reasoning and, and kind of poking fun at, you know, how ridiculous it all seems from the outside. Um, it's kind of amusing that. Plato sort of gets a dig in, in at Aristophanes here in the symposium in sort of the reverse way by giving him hiccups and making him out to be kind of ridiculous and having Socrates kind of totally dismantle his, his view on love. Like it's even sort of emphasized that afterwards when, when things are getting a little nuts that Aristophanes keeps trying to like talk to Socrates and, and sort of you know engage him in uh about his his discussion like socrates has poked fun at his at his myth and aristophanes wants to get his digs in as well um so there's plenty of evidence that socrates was alive and that he had talked to people specifically the sophists like phaedrus like gorgias like mino like agathon all of the time um that this was fairly normal for him um but plato also gives us a sort of second look um in one of his other dialogues you might call it but it really doesn't take the form of a dialogue um the apology now this is where things get kind of weird and we need to sort of be alert for this because as much as the symposium already has so many things going on under the hood it's very hard to keep track of like all of the moving parts and all of the layers like the the different narrators that Plato introduces and you know Plato's own perspective versus the perspectives of the various speech writers like there's just so much to keep track of and I last thing I want to do is sort of add another layer on top of this but we cannot talk about Socrates without talking about his legacy both historically speaking and within the platonic dialogues because they're not entirely aligned but at the same time Plato is conscious of both and what's more, both are incredibly important for understanding the relationship, especially between Socrates and Alcibiades. Um, so we talked last time about the whole business with Athenian teachers and philosophers, how you know because Athens was a democracy, there was this explosion of sort of paid teachers where you know rich landowning Athenian gentlemen would hire the sophists like Gorgias, like Nino, like Phaedrus to teach their, their sons and sort of raise them up so they would be able to be very convincing, very persuasive orators in the Athenian demos, which means that they could get whatever they wanted by convincing you know other people, gullible people, to follow their lead to do what they wanted them to do. Socrates, as I stressed at that point, was very different. He didn't charge for his services, nor did he like go to places and talk to people for money. Instead, he just hung out in the agora, the marketplace, or you know, went to people's houses on social calls, and then he would just engage people in these conversations. So they would deeply analyze things like piety, like love, like beauty, like goodness. Um, this is hardly the only dialogue where Socrates is sort of recorded as doing this. Um, but it's also important to emphasize that Plato is writing all of these dialogues after Socrates' death. Um, and the circumstances surrounding Socrates' death are 
complicated. Um, specifically, Socrates wasn't, he didn't just like die of natural causes. Socrates was executed. He was executed by the same demos, by the same people who he had been engaging in conversation for a long time. Like, by his friends and comrades. Some of the people at this symposium were probably the people who voted to execute Socrates. That's something that Plato is very conscious of, and kind of grumpy and resentful about. He will not let people forget their complicity in the execution of Socrates. Now, the reason why they executed Socrates gets even trickier. According to multiple sources, Plato included, Socrates was executed for, and I quote, corrupting the youth of Athens. Now, depending on which dialogue you're reading, depending on which source you're reading, why exactly that was the case might differ. Uh, but there are a few important things that need to sort of be drawn out of this. Um, in the Euthyphro, for example, Plato very much emphasizes that Socrates is being accused, because at that point he's not executed yet, but he's about to go to trial. He's accused of corrupting the youth of Athens by creating new gods and not worshiping the old ones. And this is a fairly consistent feature of the Platonic version of Socrates, and probably Socrates himself as well. Just as we said that, you know, based on looking at like the way that Pausanias synthesizes the different myths, or how Agathon sort of throws them out, or how Aristophanes creates his own myth from the ground up, it's obvious that Athenian society was pretty playing pretty fast and loose with the mythic traditions that underlie their religious practices. Um, obviously they have tremendous respect for Hesiod and for Homer, for all of the myth writers who sort of contribute to their, the sort of canon of myth as they have it, but they also recognize there are contradictions, there are problems, there are things that don't quite hold up. Uh, but where Aristophanes is sort of playing a game by creating his own myth, and Agathon is, you know, playing fast and loose with the myths by attributing characteristics to love that are ultimately flattering but not necessarily good, um, like, in, in, by good I mean in line with the existing sort of tradition surrounding Eros, Socrates is actually rejecting some of these myths, or that seems to be the way that Plato presents him. Um, in the Republic, for example, there's literally a passage where Socrates says that Homer and Hesiod are straight out, no question, lying. And therefore, we should not let children read those books because they are presenting a very false and very distorted view of the way that the gods behave. Notice the distinction there. You can say whatever nonsense you want about the gods as long as, as it is ultimately flattering, praises them, and also does no disservice to any of the writers who have come before. Like, Pausanias notices that Homer and Hesiod disagree, but rather than saying Homer is wrong and Hesiod is right, or Hesiod is wrong and Homer is right, he is instead saying that they are both right. They are both compatible. Here is the way that they are compatible. There are two characters to Aphrodite and two characters to Eros. That was fairly typical. It is synthetic. It agrees with everyone. But Plato and and Socrates, by contrast, frequently reject both, saying, no, they are contradictory and they are both wrong. This is not what Eros looks like. 
And when we see what Socrates does in the symposium, where he's characterizing love as being the child of poverty and plenty, how it is lacking all of these characteristics, wants beauty, needs it. Like, yes, it makes for a compelling argument. It makes for a compelling perspective on love. And it's not unflattering, but it does sort of reject the traditional notions of who love is in a way that most of our other speechwriters, even Agathon, who is telling just a pack of lies, ultimately are not. What I'm saying here is that Agathon, Aristophanes, etc., they are presenting a very like politically correct for, you know, 6th century BC Athens view of love in a way that Socrates just isn't. Socrates is flying in the face, directly challenging things that people have kind of grown out of, but still pretend to respect, still make as though they are respecting them, still make as though they are revering these things. Socrates is playing a dangerous game, in short. Um, and while everybody else is playing it a little bit deftly and kind of with a little snideness, nobody is willing to admit out and out that they have stopped believing in the gods. They have stopped believing in the myths. Socrates does, and that makes him a target. Now, in addition to this business of potentially chucking out the myths, Socrates also has this weird kind of myth that circulates around him as well. According to Plato in the Apology, which is the story of Socrates like being on trial and presenting his defense for himself, apologia in the Greek does not mean like to you know be sorry for things. It's to present a defense, um, and that's what our our word apology comes from. Um, what Socrates says in his Apology, at least according to Plato, is that. At some point in the past, some random dude went to the oracle at Delphi, which is the greatest of all the oracles. It is the oracle that gives the truth about anything that you ask about. So farmers will go there to ask when to plant their crops. Um, you know, generals will go there before making an important strategic decision. Statesmen will go there before they take on a great like public works project. Like everybody goes to the oracle at Delphi. Everybody has questions for it. You perform your sacrifice, you get your wisdom from Apollo himself, that's the way that this oracle is supposed to function. So if the oracle at Delphi says it, you can practically guarantee that it's true. And in this case, some random dude goes to the oracle at Delphi and asks, who is the wisest man in Athens? And the oracle at Delphi responds, Socrates. Now, this random dude goes back to Socrates and he's like, Socrates, guess what? I just talked to the oracle at Delphi and the oracle said, you are the wisest man in Athens. And according to Socrates, or at least according to Plato in the Apology, Socrates' response is, no, no way, cannot possibly be the case. There is no way on the gods of green earth that I am the wisest man in Athens. Look at all these sophists, look at all these teachers, look at all these people that that people pay to sort of instruct their children. You've got your Gorgias, you've got your Mino, you've got your Phaedrus, you've got your Phaedo. Like, all of these people are obviously recognized as geniuses, people who understand the world and everything that's going on in it. I, Socrates, know nothing, and therefore cannot possibly be wiser than they are. And in fact, I will go and prove it. And according to the Apology, Socrates goes around and he starts pestering the sophists. He goes to Gorgias and he's like, Gorgias, you are supposedly the expert on goodness. So tell me, what is goodness? 
And Gorgias is like, well, goodness is that which is most fit for human beings. And Socrates is like, dude, what does that mean? Like, that doesn't mean anything to me. Like, what, what do we mean in terms of the, mo the best for human beings? Like, is this something that we have or something that we don't have? And Gorgias is like, well, sometimes some people have it and some people don't have it. And these are the people. And Socrates is like, all right, which people have it, which people don't have it? And Gorgias is like, well, at certain times it looks like some people have it, but then other times they lose it. Like, and Socrates is like, this is this is getting nowhere. This is not helping. You were you were not explaining this clearly. Why are you going back and forth? Why are you changing your mind? Like, do you know what goodness is or not? Gorgias is forced to admit, well, if, you know, that I do know what goodness is, but if you don't understand what I'm telling you, then obviously, you know, and Socrates is like, this is bullshit. You don't know what goodness is. You just think you know what goodness is. So he goes to Phaedrus, and Phaedrus is the resident expert on beauty. So he's like, Phaedrus, tell me what beauty is. And Phaedrus is like, well, beauty is the characteristic that, you know, shows attractiveness to other people. And Socrates is like, okay, so is that something that, like, everybody possesses or just human beings? And Phaedrus is like, well, all things that are beautiful possess beauty. And, you know, it's all of, uh, all of the things. Like, it's just our attractiveness to it. And Socrates is like, oh, so, like, it's located in the person seeing the beauty, not the beautiful thing itself. And Phaedrus is like, no, 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 no. You, you're totally misunderstanding me and they go back and forth for a while and finally Socrates is forced to admit Phaedrus you also don't know anything about beauty you just don't know that you don't know anything about beauty and this is where things click for Socrates after he has gone to from sophist to sophist like interrogated all of these people and ultimately come to the conclusion that all these sophists all these teachers all these people who supposedly are very smart and know what they're talking about actually don't know anything Socrates is forced to conclude, I am the wisest man in Athens. I am the wisest man in Athens not because of what I know, but because I am the only person in Athens who realizes how dumb I am. I am the only one who knows that he is a moron, and therefore I am wise. Only because I recognize my limitations, recognize my own stupidity, that's what makes me wise. Whereas all those other people think that they are wise and don't in fact possess wisdom. Now, we can see this in the symposium as well. Like, notice how, you know, his, con his conversation with Agathon brings out that same truth. Agathon, who just delivered this glowing encomium on love that everyone applauded for because it was so beautiful and so attractive, as Socrates points out, at the end of the day is fundamentally wrong about the nature of love. I thought love meant that you lacked something. I thought, how can you be in love with something that you already possess? How can you want what you already have? So Agathon is forced to commit, I forced to admit, he was totally mistaken. He had no idea what he was talking about. He was, in fact, as Socrates points out, lying. Um, but here's the trick. Like, okay, so Socrates apparently went around Athens and told everyone that they were idiots. And that he, Socrates, was smarter than they were because Socrates at least knew that he knew nothing and all of these other people apparently do in fact know nothing and don't even know that. This, you probably will be surprised to hear, did not make him many friends. And when in fact the, he is standing before the accusers and they are saying, you know, you have corrupted the youth of Athens. And Socrates' response is, guys, you are all idiots and you have all hired idiots to teach your children. For some mad reason, that causes them all to accuse him of being guilty. And then they all convict him and now he is condemned to die. And a few days later he drinks hemlock and dies. 
he is executed. Plato presents this as the truth of Socrates' death, his execution. He was accused by someone who was very grumpy with him. Um, he was... He went on trial and then proceeded to tell the truth, but also in telling the truth, offend literally everyone who was there to listen to him. They convicted him and he was executed. But Plato also emphasizes that this is not fair. That Socrates was in fact smart. He wasn't asking the wrong questions, nor was he accusing anyone of being stupid. He was surprisingly polite through the whole thing, just also not very tactful. But this isn't the only story of Socrates' execution. Like, as much as this makes for a compelling story, we do have to recognize that it is Plato's version of the story, and Plato is likely to be biased. Plato is very likely to, you know, paint his teacher in a much more positive light than maybe he actually was. The fact of the matter is, the story about Socrates is way more complicated. A lot of the stories about Socrates from outside sources, like what we see with Aristophanes in the, in the clouds, is that he was a teacher, but he was also obnoxious about it. Um, and this is something that Socrates kind of owns in the Platonic Dialogues. Like, uh, Plato doesn't ignore this. He just sort of characterizes it differently. Socrates at one point calls himself the gadfly of Athens. Like, he is obnoxious, he is a pest, he stings, and the stings that he makes are painful and irritating. Um, but he is also necessary. Athens needs to be stung. Um, Athens needs to be goaded into changing their behavior, and Socrates is here to do that. Um... But at the same time, Plato does tend to put a positive spin on it. Socrates is the gadfly, he is aware of the fact that he's annoying, but people are unnecessarily irritated by him when all he's actually trying to do is be truthful. In fact, it seems like the classicists who I've talked to about the subject, who aren't philosophers, tend to think that he's more annoying than Plato gives him credit for, and really he is just being a pain in the butt, and, you know, sort of interfering in ways that he doesn't necessarily need to be. But at the end of the day, as much as, you know, a public nuisance is what Socrates is, that doesn't necessarily warrant an execution. Um, in this case, what people are, tend to point to as the sort of historical cause uh, for Socrates' execution was that Socrates did, in fact, corrupt the youth of Athens, um, specifically one youth. And this youth is familiar to us. It's Alcibiades. See, we cannot talk about the execution of Socrates without talking about Alcibiades' role in this. Because the fact of the matter is, when Socrates was going about being a teacher and being irritating to people and also questioning, you know, questioning the sophists in ways that may have been less than tactful, there was a war going on. Uh, specifically the Peloponnesian War. Uh, after the whole business with Sparta and the 300 where Athens and Sparta worked together to prevail against the Persians and the, you know, great war that ultimately got to be characterized by Herodotus as like the central conflict of Greek identity, um, it almost immediately fell apart. Like within a generation, Sparta and Athens were at each other's throats again in the Peloponnesian War. So Sparta and Athens fighting one another meant that the only way that one is likely to triumph over the other is if they get a bunch of allies over to their side. Like Sparta and Athens themselves, Athens for sure 
sure, has the better navy, but Sparta has by far the better army. Um, like, nobody stands up to Spartan foot soldiers. Um, but Sparta can't actually get to Athens without going, you know, overseas in all likelihood, because Greece is a giant rocky nightmare to try and traverse on land. So since Athens controls the seaways, but Sparta controls the land, neither of them can really prevail over the other unless they increase their numbers, which means they've got to find allies. Now, Sparta already has a decent number of allies. Sparta typically functions because they are basically operating as the hired military for all of the city-states in the area. Likewise, because Athens has this really huge navy, there are a lot of local city-states that are allied with them as well. So the balance of power isn't broken this way. And a lot of the city-states that have remained neutral in the past are very keen to stay out of the Athens-Sparta conflict, lest they offend one or the other and they turn out to win. Like, you do not, like, pick a side when your neighbors are fighting. Because no matter how it turns out, you will end up upsetting people. Um, so, the Athenians are all sort of sitting in their demos. They've gone to all of their allies and tried to, like, get them onto their side. And some have agreed, and some are, you know, holding back, trying to remain neutral. And... At this point, Alcibiades shows up. Alcibiades is of age, he is of a noble family, and what's more, as we see him in the symposium, he is super hot. Uh, remember, all these Greeks so far have been very much emphasizing like male and male sexual relationships, male physical beauty especially. Like Pausanias, Phaedrus, Agathon, even Aristophanes to some degree have all very much stressed that the ideal love relationship is between men. Um, between younger men and older, wealthier men. And Alcibiades is the pinnacle of male beauty for the Greeks. He is charming, he is attractive, he looks and speaks intelligently. Um, he just absolutely seduces everybody that he comes into contact with. Now, Alcibiades is Socrates' student. Um, and in fact, Socrates, as he's talking about it here, and as we've seen it, as we see in other discourses, other dialogues, other historical sources, Alcibiades is kind of always hanging around Socrates. Alcibiades has sort of adopted Socrates as his teacher, but Socrates isn't entirely a willing participant in this relationship. Um, like, like we see with Alcibiades' speech to Socrates, where he's talking about like how he you know, wraps Socrates up in a blanket so he couldn't escape, and then Alcibiades is like desperately trying to seduce Socrates, and it's apparently just not working. Uh, the same seems to hold up with other historical sources. Elsewhere, Socrates is even reported to say that Alcibiades is unteachable. He has not spent, like, Socrates has never spent more time on a single student, and yet Alcibiades is so corrupt, so, like, I don't even know, duplicitous, perhaps, that there is no way that Socrates can teach him virtue. He is just a lost cause. So Alcibiades, hot, sexy, charming, totally hit that Alcibiades, comes into the Athenian demos as this debate is occurring. What should we do about Sparta? How should we go about the war? And Alcibiades' suggestion is, I want to take all of our ships, or like a two-thirds of the fleet and leave only like the bare minimum defenders here, and I want to sail off to freaking Italy. I want to go find... Uh, allies in the Peloponnesian War among the Sicilians. Like, 
I don't know if you were familiar with Mediterranean geography, like, the Mediterranean Sea is where a lot of the ancient world is sort of devoting their time and energy. Like, it is just where a lot of ancient civilizations cropped up, and a lot of ancient civilizations conduct trade with one another. They're always fighting, they're always trading, they're always engaged with each other. It's, it's this whole thing. Um, but Italy is very far to the west of the entire Peloponnesian peninsula and archipelago. Like, we're talking about a long journey, months in all likelihood, far to the west where people are going to die and necessarily, like, stuff's going to get lost, things happen, in order to get, hopefully, allies to come and join the Athenians who, you know, these guys never should would have had a horse in this race. They have no reason to participate in little Greek squabbles. Um, Alcibiades is convinced he's going to be able to persuade all of them to come and help and fight back the Spartans. Um, and there are several people in the Demos who are like, this is a terrible idea, why would we ever sacrifice this much of our fleet to go on this boondoggle chase? But Alcibiades is just so damn handsome and so damn hot and so damn persuasive that he manages to get the Demos onto his side. So they all sail off. Alcibiades, with his two-thirds of the fleet and the two generals who he's not been seeing eye to eye with, and they sail all the way over to Italy in a journey that takes a long time. And finally they get to Italy and Sicily, and it turns out that they are also engaged in this kind of internecine struggle. There is apparently this one group who they definitely want to, you know, recruit over to their side, but they're currently fighting with this very strong, powerful army. So, now the question becomes, how do we defeat this big, potentially tyrannical army? And once again, we're faced with some potential options. One of the generals is like, all right, we should attack them right now, under cover of darkness, when they least expect it. We can take them by surprise from behind. They'll never see it coming. We can rout them utterly, immediately recruit this, this you know, state that we've rescued over to our side. And then when the stories of our victory have circulated, we can go around to all the neighboring city-states and get them to join us as well. This sounds like a good plan. Now the second general is like, okay, here's my plan. Let's get, you know, let's send a, an envoy to the actual city itself. And then when daylight arrives, we can both attack this two-pronged attack. Like, they can attack from the city walls while we attack from behind. We can catch them in this pincer movement, destroy the army, rout them, and then together we can go and recruit allies from the neighboring islands and the neighboring mainland. Alcibiades, of course, has his own opinion, and it sounds very much like the one that we have just heard. How about, instead of attacking right now while they are unprepared, let's go and make allies of all of the local other city-states, bring them to the fight, and then we can just crush this enemy army by overpowering them, and then we can liberate this city, and they'll join our side, and then we can all sail back to Greece and, and stick it to the Spartans. And this is obviously the worst idea. Like, there is no guarantee that the other... Like, the Greeks don't have a rapport with all these Italian city-states. There's no reason why they should join up. And yet, because Alcibiades is just so damned attractive, everybody goes along with it. So Alcibiades and all of the ships, they leave. They just let this army kind of, like, 
take over this city and then they go and find all these allies and it takes them weeks to talk to all these people and nobody's interested in joining up like maybe they get one or two city states on their side they come back the city is almost completely destroyed you know the army that has been attacking them has been reinforced several times at this point they try and attack them like Alcibiades and the Greeks try and attack them and they're totally routed and the Athenian navy is almost completely sunk only a few ships escape but, weirdly enough, during the fighting, nobody can find Alcibiades. Where did Alcibiades go? What happened? Why did he take off in the middle of this last-ditch effort to sort of, like, finally get at least one ally and, and maybe, you know, turn the tide of battle with, by bringing allies back to Greece? Alcibiades went home. Alcibiades was in the middle of the battle and was like, peace out, I'm out. Bye. And he went back to Greece. And not only did he go back to Athens, he ransacked the place. Like, he totally defiled a bunch of their, their sort of god statues. He literally, like, raided and pillaged a bunch of the Athenian nobles' houses like he stole from them. And then he took all of his ill-gotten swag and he went, get this, to Sparta! Like, their, their enemy that they were supposed to fight in the first place, like, it turns out Alcibiades has, like, a famous aunt or uncle who lives in Sparta, so he brings all of his ill-gotten swag into Sparta and is now protected by the Spartan army. So the Greek ships come limping back all the way from Italy with virtually no allies weaker than they were when they set out and they come back and they find out that Alcibiades has wrecked up the place taken all their stuff and basically delivered it into Sparta's hands the Athenians are basically screwed there is no way they have lost the, the sort of balance of power they had with Sparta all because Alcibiades has ruined it and yet they cannot hold Alcibiades responsible because he has nestled himself through his wiles and attractiveness right in the heart of their enemy fortress. So they're looking for a scapegoat. Who could possibly have taught Alcibiades to be so duplicitous, so manipulative, so monstrously disloyal, so vicious? Well, who is Alcibiades' teacher? Why? Socrates, of course. And so they put Socrates on trial for corrupting not just the youth of Athens broadly, but for corrupting Alcibiades. For creating this monster who destroyed Athenian society from the inside. Who will completely allow Sparta to take them over and rule them over tyrannically for multiple years before they finally regain their independence. This is what Athens ultimately concludes. We will execute Socrates. He will be our scapegoat. We will kill him because of what Alcibiades, his failed student, the one that Socrates had always admitted he could never, you know, talk to, could never communicate with, could never persuade. That's why they kill him. And if anything, this is even more unfair than the way that Plato presents it. Socrates didn't have anything to do with this. Yeah, maybe Socrates was working with, you know, Alcibiades at one point. There's certainly very little evidence to it. Like, some of the commentators seem to suggest that they were really in cahoots. In which case, yeah, Socrates was a traitor and probably deserved to die. 
But, at the very least, Plato's insinuation is that this was entirely Alcibiades' doing. Socrates had nothing to do with it. And notice here in the symposium how the way that the relationship between Socrates and Alcibiades just drives this point home. Notice what Plato is stressing here in the symposium. And notice the way that Alcibiades is presented. So now, with that history in mind, let's talk about these two speeches, these two characters, and the way that love is presented between them. Because if, in fact, Socrates was seduced by Alcibiades, if he was working in cahoots with him, if, they were, if he was a traitor along with Alcibiades, that would make Socrates culpable. But notice that Plato emphasizes the opposite. That, Plato, that Socrates' love of beauty takes an entirely different form, and he stresses very powerfully in the speech with Alcibiades that Socrates was having none of it. That Socrates was not seduced by Alcibiades, and in fact it was all those other idiot Athenians who were seduced by him. If they had just listened to Socrates, everything would have been fine. If they had not been carried away by Alcibiades' young, handsome you know, perfect masculinity wiles, then everything would have gone well. They might even have beaten the Spartans in the long run. But let's look at love, shall we? Now, we should very much stress here as well that Socrates, at least as he is portrayed in the symposium, as Plato is presenting him here, it is striking that Socrates is in the student position for most of the speech that is presented here. This is something that happens fairly frequently in Socratic dialogues, like in the dialogues of Plato. Um, there are several like mid to late dialogues that Plato writes where Socrates will get like educated by Gorgias or by Theotetus. Um, in the Parmenides, like Socrates asks him initially, you know, very Socratic questions, and it looks like we're talking about the ideal forms, but then Parmenides, like, takes over for the entire back two-thirds of the dialogue and basically, like, schools Socrates in the, the exact reversal. Diatima and Socrates have a similar sort of relationship. Diatima is playing Socrates to Socrates playing the student throughout this whole back half of the speech, after Socrates does this to Agathon. Um, and we should notice... We should very much be aware of the fact that there is this sort of parallel between the student-teacher relationship and the lover's relationship, as Plato is presenting it here. Remember, most of the, the speakers we've seen so far, they've been emphasizing the, the love relationship as a pederastic relationship, as a you know, mentor or you know, lover, erastes to eramenos, lover to boyfriend or beloved, um, it is very much a disproportionate power structure. Notice that that same sort of imparting of wisdom applies to philosophical relationships, the teacher and the student. Um, just as Erastes, you know, is giving gifts to the Aramanos, and the Aramanos, you know, receives those gifts from the Erastes in favor in uh, in exchange for sexual favors, um, Socrates is giving people wisdom in exchange for presumably the attractiveness of young men. It is, seems to be implied here, or perhaps just freely, because as Diatima uh, suggests, physical beauty is kind of secondary in this particular case. Um, Notice, too, that, this, that Socrates actually claims to be an expert on love in this dialogue. Like, much earlier, way back, he actually says, you know, 
the, love is the one thing I do, in fact, know about. Um, and the suggestion here is because Diotima has talked to him about it. This is rare for a Socratic dialogue. Typically, Socrates presents himself as knowing nothing and asking others to teach him. Um, like in the Euthyphro, Socrates says to Euthyphro, I know nothing about piety, and I'm being accused of impiety. Teach me about piety so I can defend myself. And the ostensibly what is happening in the dialogue is Socrates is, you know, asking Euthyphro questions about piety, and, pi and Euthyphro is answering them, although really it's just like this, where Socrates is actually sort of guiding Euthyphro into an awareness of his own ignorance. Um, this is typical. But again, Diatima and Socrates' relationship reverses that. Socrates is now in the student role. Socrates doesn't know anything, but at the very least he is willing to learn. He wants to know. He knows that he doesn't know here. Um, now we get a very different view of beauty here. But notice that the structure is very similar to the speeches that have gone before. We start with a discussion of, of love's nature, but then we also get our discussion of how love benefits us. But the nature of love here is wildly different from all of the forms that have come before, especially Agathon's sort of blind encomium on beauty. Um, here, beauty, or he, love, I keep mixing up love and beauty, I'm so sorry. Um, Agathon's encomium on love, like Socrates' encomium on love is very different, especially when contrasted with Agathon's. Um, so Socrates instead, like in his speech, says that Diatima taught him uh, that love was the child of poverty and plenty. Those are the two parents, as, we're, as is reported on, on uh, page 44. That's rather a long story, Diatima replied, but I'll tell you it all the same. Once upon a time, the gods were celebrating the birth of Aphrodite, and among them was Plenty, whose mother was cunning. After the feast, as you'd expected a festive occasion, poverty turned up to beg, so there she was by the gate. Now Plenty had gone, gotten drunk on nectar, this was before the discovery of wine, and he'd gone into Zeus's garden, collapsed, and fallen asleep. Prompted by her lack of means, poverty came up with the idea of having a child by Plenty, so she lay with him and became pregnant with love. The reason love became Aphrodite's follower and attendant, then, is that he was conceived during her birthday party. Also, he is innately attracted towards beauty, and Aphrodite is beautiful. So notice what the suggestion is here. Love is the offspring of poverty and plenty, want and fullness. And what Diatima emphasizes is that, pop, that love properly belongs to neither one. It is not, as Agathon suggests, that love is constantly you know full of beauty full of goodness full of justice full of wisdom but at the same time when socrates says are would you will really go so far as to say that love is empty that it lacks all these things that it doesn't have wisdom or beauty that it is ugly and that is it is ignorant diatima chides him no that's not what i'm saying just because something lack or doesn't have beauty doesn't mean that it is you know, missing, that it is absent. You can occupy a moderate, a neutral space. Um, so the example she gives is, you know, a person can be not good and not bad, not knowledgeable, but also not ignorant. What is the middle ground, she asks. And when she asks, you know, what is the middle ground between knowledge and ignorance, our answer is true belief. Uh, True belief isn't knowledgeable. It is believing something that is true for bad reasons. But it is better than ignorance. It is better than not having any idea of what's true. 
like believing what is true is good, even if there's no good reason for it. The badness of true belief is that if it's unjustified, you can't predictably keep believing true things. You could just as easily believe something false, and you don't know whether what you believe is true or false. Um, but that's not the same as ignorance, and it's not the same as knowledge. Knowledge is believing true things for a good reason. Ignorance is either not believing the truth or believing something that is false or not believing anything. Um, likewise, when you know Socrates is trying to say, you know, is love good, is love bad, Diatima is stressing it's neither. Uh, at the bottom of page 42, she says, Stop insisting then that not attractive is the same as repulsive, or that not good is the same as bad. And then you'll also stop thinking that, just because, as you yourself has conceded, love isn't good or attractive. He therefore has to be repulsive and bad. He might fall between these extremes. Um, so, love is neither good nor bad. Ni love is neither, you know, attractive nor repulsive, neither beautiful nor ugly. Um, what's more, Socrates and Diatima, further on in their conversation, they come to the conclusion that love is not even properly speaking a god. Um, because the gods are wise, and the gods are good, and the gods are beautiful by necessity. That's part of their character. So Eros then can't be a god. Instead, Eros is, as Diatima puts it, a spirit. And importantly, she describes the role of spirits as, on the bottom of page 43, translating and carrying messages from men to gods and from gods to men. They convey men's prayers and the gods' instructions and men's offerings and the gods' returns on these offerings. As mediators between the two, they fill the remaining space and so make the universe an interconnected whole. Notice what we're saying about love here. Love is not, you know, a god with all of the virtues of a god the way that Agathon presents it, nor is love something empty and craving and, you know, unfulfilled desire. Uh, by contrast, love is the great intermediary. Love as a spirit connects gods and men, men and men, men and women, women and goddesses. Like, love is the great go-between. It doesn't possess any of the virtues, nor does it completely lack them, nor does it have vices, by contrast. Instead, it just operates as this intermediary, as this conduit. Like Eryximachus, it binds the world together. It brings this connection. And like a lot of the other uh, speakers before us, love still has this role of fulfillment. Um, it, you know, connects people together the way that Aristophanes talks about it, or it raises up virtue the way that uh, Phaedrus talks about it. It in, is, in fact, about fulfilling one's wants and desires the way Pausanias talks about it. Um, the Socratic, you know, speech here, this, this characterization of love by way of Diatima and Socrates, does in fact have a lot in common with those that have gone before, even as Socrates has condemned all of these people for lying about love. It's just that it's constituted differently. Um, now, the next thing we learn is that, like... The reason why we've sort of been mistaken about all of this is because we've been viewing love from the wrong perspective. Um, so after, you know, Socrates has finally gotten it beaten into his head that, like, love does not have wisdom, but that doesn't mean that it is ignorant, that it is, it does not have goodness, but that doesn't mean that it is bad. Um, 
Diatima finally argues, even a child wouldn't have realized by now that it is those who fall between wisdom and ignorance, a category which includes love, who love wisdom. I.e., love is not something to love. Love loves. And I realize that that sounded like absolute gibberish. Um, we keep perceiving love, the God, as something beloved, something that we should praise, something that we should love, something that we should admire. But what Diatima emphasizes here, and what Socrates was kind of getting at a little earlier with Agathon, is that we keep seeing love in the wrong role. Love does the loving. It is not something to be beloved. So love then loves wisdom. It craves wisdom. And that's better than, than being completely ignorant, but not as good as having wisdom. That's that intermediary position. By wanting good things, which is the characteristic that Diatima seems most inclined to attribute to love, love desires beauty, love desires goodness, love desires wisdom. Um, as it's characterized later, love wants to bring things into the world. Love is constantly pregnant. Love is constantly sort of, you know, like trying to create. Um, by wanting the good and not having it, that places love between true goodness and badness. It, love does not have the good, love, but love is not so relentlessly evil as not to want it. Um, and this is the sort of intermediary position that love occupies, but it is also very much framed in terms of wisdom, framed in terms of goodness. Um, love is the seeker after goodness, the seeker of beauty, the seeker of knowledge, the seeker of wisdom. Um, and that should also describe the philosopher. Again, the parallels here are very clear, and Diatima increasingly makes it obvious. Like, um, notice at the top of page 47 where we sort of compare love not just to wisdom and goodness, but also to creativity. Um, what Diatima emphasizes is when we talk about lovers, we tend to focus on a fairly narrow field. Like, she has just revealed to Socrates that everybody loves. This is the nature of things. Everyone is a lover. Um, it is common to all of us. Everyone wants good things. Everybody wants wisdom. Everybody wants justice. Everybody wants beauty. This is universal. And Socrates is like, well, then why don't we call everybody else lovers? Diatime is like, because we're using the word wrong. What we do, in fact, is single out a particular kind of love, namely love of love between like romantic partners and apply it to the term which properly belongs to the whole. We call it love and use other terms for other kinds of love. So what Socrates is doing is he's blowing out the concept of eros. Eros is more than just a relationship between, you know, two men attracted to each other. No, it is like Eryximachus is talking about, the force that binds everyone together, that brings everyone to beauty, to to justice, to wisdom. It is something that occupies everyone and therefore informs everyone. We are all lovers, properly speaking. Um, now, Socrates asks for an analogy. How, you know, why is it that we use this term incorrectly? And Diatima gives him the example that we call people poets, even if they are creating something that isn't necessarily poetry. Um, in the Greek, the term poietes or poiesis refers to just creation or creators generally. Um, it's kind of like how we call 
uh, how we say the word artist. And, you know, the, the default stance of what you refer to as artist is, you know, a painter, like a, you know, graphic artist in a sense. Um, but artist can refer to writers or, you know, to playwrights or to um, TV show people, like actors and actresses, um, directors, like video game designers. All of these people are artists. But when you say the word artist, it most narrowly refers to just people who paint things. Likewise, um, lover in this situation most narrowly refers to romantic lovers, people who are romantically infatuated with one another. Um, but it can also refer to literally anyone who wants something. And it is worth noting here that the word itself, philosophy, uh, is a Greek compound. Philia and Sophia, lovers of wisdom. Now, admittedly, it's a different kind of love, and uh, Socrates is kind of doing a little bit of violence to the language by suggesting that, you know, the love of wisdom, philosophia, could also be, you know, erosophia. Um, it could just as easily be an erotic kind of love. Um, he is sort of conflating the two terms here. Um, but Diatima goes on to say that this whole love, this love wants to create, it wants to, to make better, to engender goodness in ourselves. And she refers to it as a kind of perpetual pregnancy. Um, it is birth and procreation in a beautiful, uh, in a beautiful or attractive medium. Um, so the whole purpose of love, the reason why we experience love, love as go-between is kind of almost a midwife. We experience love as the wish to give birth to our ideas or to our own immortality, in a sense. Um, and this is another hard connection that is drawn out. Um, Diatima stresses the aim of love has to be immortality as well, towards the bottom of page 49. And she emphasizes that this takes a bunch of different forms. When we are, in fact, bound up in physical love, it is immortality that motivates us because we want to have a second generation to take over for us. We want to bear children and therefore, you know, bring about the next generation, continue our livelihood, live on in our offspring. But notice, too, that this kind of love is between a man and a woman. Now, I've sort of, like, not... I mentioned this in the last lecture, but we really haven't explored it here. I think it's very significant that Diatima is a woman. That the, you know, greatest encomium on love that we are presented, the, the sort of central character, the sage of sages, you know, here are all these speech writers and they're all looking up to Socrates and Socrates looks up to Diatima. The fact that Diatima is a woman, that the sage of sages on the subject of love is a woman, isn't accidental on Plato's part. And remember, we saw a hint of this too with uh, Phaedrus when he was talking about Alcestis as blessed by the gods for her love of her husband. Um, Diatima, Plato, and by suggesting this about Diatima, is suggesting that all of those speakers like Pausanias, like uh, uh, Aristophanes, who sort of relegated feminine love to this secondary or, you know, degraded or common perspective, we're kind of doing something unjust. And Plato, by contrast, by making Diatima a woman, by making her the sort of greatest of, of love teachers, suggests that women actually have 
the greatest understanding of love, our primary. And this should not come as a shocking surprise. Like, um, Aphrodite herself, the goddess of love, is a woman. Um, Eros is characterized as, you know, partially male and partially feminine. Like, it's a male god as Diatyman describes it, but he has very feminine qualities. Um, what Diatyman certainly seems to be suggesting here, what Plato certainly seems to be suggesting here, is that love is not a male-on-male -male activity, at least not the way that Socrates is talking about it. Yes, that is a component of it, and it is certainly suggested later on that, you know, when two men who are searching for virtue, who are searching for sort of mental perfection beyond purely physical gratification and some kind of, like, immortality in the, the place of one offspring, uh, gives birth to an even greater goodness. And, like, he's comparing Homer and Hesiod, the great poets, or the great playwrights, including Agathon, or, you know, the great artists of any number of, of varieties, um, they give birth to greater goods than mere children. So Plato is not rejecting the homosexual relationship or even rejecting sort of the primacy of homosexual relationships, but he is stressing that women do have a place in this business, and they are at the very least as capable of profound love as men are. Uh, Plato is giving us a surprisingly feminist positive outlook. Like, we're not there yet. I don't want to pretend like we are. But the suggestion here is that Diatyma is, as a woman, every bit as knowledgeable about men, if not more so. Um, or every bit as knowledgeable about love, if not more so, than men are. Um, so there is a role for women in the business of love, not just in physical intimacy with you know, a man, but also there seems to be a pretty strong suggestion that if Diatyma is as philosophical and insightful about love, then certainly other women could be too. Um, like Sappho, you know, Sappho with her insights about love and with her very stirring descriptions of this sort of female-to-female -female love, this love of feminine beauty from a woman's perspective, that too is love, no less than male love, no less than hom homosexual love as uh, these Greek speakers understand it. It is not reserved for men. It is open to both. Um, now, importantly, like, it is superior to take on education. Um, it is important that, like, Socrates stresses that the sort of highest aim of love is this sort of mutual ben uh, beneficial relationship where an older man bestows upon a younger man his education and in return gets inspiration. That seems to be the suggestion here. Like, notice the, notice the, uh, the bottom of the paragraph um, 209AC-ish on page 52. Um, Since he's pregnant, he prefers physical beauty to ugliness, and he's particularly pleased if it comes across a mind which is attractive, upright, and gifted at the same time. This is a person he immediately finds he can talk fluently to about virtue and about what qualities and practices it takes for a man to be good. In short, he takes on this person's education. 
What I'm saying, in other words, is that once he's come into contact with an attractive person and become intimate with him, he produces and gives birth to the offspring he's been pregnant with for so long. He thinks of his partner all the time, whether or not he's there, and together they share in raising their offspring. Consequently, this kind of relationship involves a far stronger bond and far more constant affection than is experienced by people who are united by ordinary children, because the offspring of this relationship are particularly attractive and are closer to immortality than ordinary children. We'd all prefer to have children of this sort rather than the humankind, and we cast envious glances at good poets like Homer and Hesiod, or, as he says later, the children of Lycurgus. Lycurgus built this grand uh, political system in Sparta, this grand set of laws that has endured through the ages, or Solon, who designed the Athenian constitution. These great ideas, these great philosophical insights, these great triumphs of legislative design, or these great works of poetry, these have more immortality and succeed in offering immortality to the lover in a greater way than just pure procreation. But remember, as much as this is framed as a male lover and a male beloved, a male teacher and a male student, remember Diatima is teaching Socrates in the same way as Socrates is suggesting that the greatest works of art are the product of this love relationship, he is also suggesting that this is one of those great works of art, and Diatima is its engineer. Diatima is the great creator. Um, just as all of these speeches are received by us secondhand, thirdhand, through Apollodorus, through Aristotemis, through the actual speakers, so we have another layer here. Socrates getting the, his speech from Diatima. Once again, we are one more step removed, but it is Diatima's wisdom, Diatima's insight, Diatima's truth that shines through four generations of speakers, four removes from the reader, and that will continue to go on and be immortal, to be the basis for, heck, our class on love. Like, we now, 2,500 years later, are appreciating Diatima's immortality. Now, it's entirely possible, and most scholars would agree, that Diatima is probably a fictional creation of Plato's for this purpose. Maybe of Socrates' too, we don't know. So no Socratic dialogue ever survived. Um, like, they, there were supposedly uh, dialogues written by Socrates, but they have all been lost at one point or another. None of them, none of them survive. Um, but the suggestion here that Plato is making is certainly that not that you know women are excluded from this relationship. If anything, they take the primary spot. They are the er-teacher in this sense, in the same way that Aphrodite is presented by Hesiod as being this sort of primordial goddess, you know, unbegotten, but instead created when the genitals of Uranus like hit the oceans and gave birth to her. Um, Socrates and Plato are both suggesting that not only is the teacher-student relationship the ideal form of love, the perfected love relationship, but this can be a woman teacher and a man, or a man teacher and a younger man as their student. There's all sorts of ways that this dynamic could occur. What is important is not the physical characteristics. Remember, those are secondary, those are earlier, and those are less significant, less valuable than what we are seeing here. These great works of art, these great works of insight, these great works of um, like legislative understanding, Solon and Lycurgus. This is what real love is all about, creating these kinds of children.
creating these sorts of virtuous offspring using the medium of attractiveness as the sort of inspiration and guide. That's the defining quality here. As for how love is perfected, according to Diatima, notice that there's a clear progression here from 53 to 54. You start, a young man just newly initiated into the mysteries of love will fall in love due to physical beauty, and that's a good thing. That will evolve, though. Eventually, they'll recognize that all bodies, ugly or beautiful, have their own beauty. That all human beings possess that beauty in some sense. And there will be less obsession and more sort of acknowledgement of beauty as something transcendent, as something that embodies all people. Um, at long last, they will come to regard physical beauty as unimportant, as less significant than mental beauty. And as they embrace this mental beauty, they'll start to recognize that all things are beautiful in their own way. And at last, what they will see is not beauty in the thing admired, beauty in things themselves, but rather they'll start to see beauty itself, capital B, beauty. And this is an incredibly important idea to Platonic thought and to the history of philosophy. Um, through dialogues like the Symposium, like the Euthyphro, and especially like the Republic, Plato is emphasizing this, this sort of mode of doing philosophy, um, this sort of philosophical idea that what we are searching for in life, um, more than just you know beautiful things or good things or just things or any of that, is these ideal forms. Beauty itself, capital B, beauty capital G, goodness, capital J, justice, goodness itself, justice itself, beauty itself, piety itself, wisdom itself. These are the ideal forms. Um, in the Republic, Plato presents this in the allegory of the cave, this idea that normally human beings are as though they are stuck in a cave, chained to a wall, forced to stare forward at the back wall where we see shadows of the things we think that are real passing before us. But they're not real. They're just shadows cast by like stick figures of horses, which we call a horse, or stick figures of people that we call people, or stick figures of fish, or water, or trees, or sunlight. All of this just shadows, imagined, images. And the philosopher escapes from the cave. They climb away from the wall. They pass the bonfire where these shadows are being cast, and they eventually make it out into broad daylight where they see the real sun, the true trees, the real objects that those shadows used to be based on. These are the ideal forms. This is what it means to seek beauty, to get beyond the sort of transitory, you know, temporal beauty that we see in everyday objects and instead see beauty itself in its original state, in its form. And once we can see that, once we recognize this eternal beauty, this culmination of love's ways, as Plato puts it on page 54, it doesn't stop, it doesn't go away. This is immortality. This is touching truth, eternal truth, eternal immortality. And we will perceive that beauty as beauty. We will see it and we will not need to ever let go of it. It will always be with us. 
So as Socrates expresses it on page 55, the proper way to go about or be guided through the ways of love is to start with beautiful things in this world and always make the beauty I've been talking about the reason for your ascent. You should use the things of this world as rungs in a ladder. You start by loving one attractive body and step up to two. From there you move on to physical beauty in general, from there to the beauty of people's activities, from there to the beauty of intellectual endeavors, and from there you ascend to that final intellectual endeavor, which is no more and no less than the study of that beauty, so that you finally recognize true beauty. Beauty in and of itself, capital B Beauty, the ideal form of beauty. And this is what life is all about. This is what love is dedicated to do. Being able to see beauty itself in its constant form, in its eternal, ideal form. Seeing beauty that does not pass away and participating in the immortality of this eternal beauty. If we defined love as the sort of pregnancy and the, the wish to deliver physical and mental procreation in an attractive medium, as it says on page 48, this is the ultimate procreate, procreative act. This is the ultimate act of the ultimate sex. Um, the mental sexual relationship that one builds with one's like mentally beautiful others and creating and understanding this pure, true beauty. Now, I should emphasize, this is a very different characterization of love from the others that have gone before. Most of the love talked about earlier on in this dialogue is, at, its, at the end of the day, sexual. And notice that Plato is instead, with the speech of Socrates, reframing it making love out to be something not purely physical, but something transcendent, something beyond the physical into the spiritual, the mental, that of the soul, in a sense. Um, and this is what is typically called platonic love. But we have to be careful about that. Like, Plato is definitely describing love, Plato is definitely describing beauty as though it is this transcendent, this eternal, this spiritual entity. Something that is beyond mortal beauty. Something that is way beyond what Pausanias is describing as common beauty, but is something closer to what Phaedrus and Pausanias are describing as like love of virtue, recognition of, in, of virtue in others. Um, that's closer to the mark, but Plato is going both beyond this without abandoning this. When we talk about platonic love, we typically, like, there are people who joke that it's a contradiction in terms, that platonic love isn't love, it is the least sexy thing in the world. But no, notice that it is conflated here. The love that Plato is experiencing is beyond sex, but it doesn't exclude it either. It includes and transcends it. This isn't philia, nor is this agape, which we'll talk about later. This is still eros. But it is an eros for a beauty that is itself spiritual and transcendent. Erotic love for Plato can be beyond the physical. You can be brought to ecstasy, be brought to orgasm by beauty seen in its purest form. And in fact, that would be the highest kind of orgasm, Plato would seem to suggest here. This is not purely, you know, mental, spiritual, transcendent, whatever. This is physical as well. The same beauty that informs us in seeing something that we fall in love with, you know, that we are attracted to, we are attracted to the beauty in that person. 
seeing the beauty itself would presumably be an absolutely mind-blowing experience in both the physical and mental sense. Um, this is not simply like what monks do or what Christians are arguing about the beatific vision of God, as we'll talk about later. This is still grounded in sexuality. But, importantly, it is going to be the Christians, and it is going to be the Stoics, and it is going to be you know, later generations who take this idea and sterilize it, who remove the sexuality from this idea of beauty, who remove the sexuality from this idea of love, and turn love into something purely transcendent, purely spiritual, and no longer at all participating in the physical. Like, in the weeks to come, we'll talk about how this idea changes. But as written, as presented by Plato, it is all-encompassing. Physical and mental. Transcendent and mundane. Beauty is in all of its forms recognized here. Not just the physical, but not just the transcendent. Both are one. And it is still eros that governs them both. It is still erotic love that Plato is describing as having this relationship. Now, I feel like we've simultaneously done no justice to what's been going on with diatima because it is very sort of vague and abstract and, you know, we didn't get a chance to sort of like break it down piece by piece, argument by argument, uh, rationale by rationale, which is honestly fair in this case because Socrates makes a couple of leaks, leaps of logic here. Not everything holds up the way that it does in many of the other Socratic dialogues. It's not that straightforward. On the contrary, I think Plato, like I've said before, knows that this is ambiguous territory we're walking into, that there are leaps of logic to be made here, that love cannot be boiled down to sheer rationality. Like, where did we get this idea of pregnancy except as a sort of allegory of sexuality? Where did we get this idea of procreation? Why did we immediately leap to the conclusion that love cannot love what it has, like it can't want what it has in the same way that a human wants what we already have, but wants it to endure? Um, like, why is that potentially a problem? Why we don't see, you know, an airtight argument here? Um, I think Plato is aware of the fact that his view of love is necessarily ambiguous. It isn't perfect. It isn't perfectly rational or able to be dissected. But what's more, notice that this is not the last word on the subject. This, the speech of Alcibiades, like Alcibiades is apparently out with a raucous group of party goers who are having a fairly disreputable party outside, comes in to apparently present Agathon with like a, a whole crown of ribbons, and then realizes that Socrates is there and is like immediately like in, engaging with them and like gets on the same couch with them and gives Socrates a crown of ribbons as well. Like remember, he's celebrating Agathon because Agathon won the tragedy, but Alcibiades is apparently so taken with Socrates that he just gets carried away. Now he's invited to add his speech to the lot, and Alcibiades, rather than doing what he's instructed, he is so carried away by his love for Socrates that instead of delivering an encomium on love, he delivers an encomium on Socrates himself. And notice that in the process, he is describing Socrates just as Diatima was describing love. Like, he describes Socrates as being one of these Silenus statue models um, that, when opened up, are found to contain effigies of gods inside. 
Now, the silentist model is like, it, it's supposed to look like this really drunk face, like it's really ugly and it's really kind of like out of it and it's really silly and dumb looking. But then it like cracks open and there's like an actual beautiful figure of a god or a goddess inside. And what Alcibiades is strongly suggesting in his metaphor and what he is breathlessly talking about throughout his entire speech is that Socrates does look ugly and silly and stupid on the outside. Everybody agrees with this. Like, all of the great historical sources agree that Socrates was kind of, like, ugly and homely. Uh, but at the same time, Alcibiades is madly in love with Socrates. Like, insanely obsessing about Socrates. And yet Socrates, as we talked about, does not return the affections. When Alcibiades tries to seduce him over and over and over again, despite the fact that Alcibiades is like the most gorgeous man that half of these Athenians have ever seen, this guy who is so attractive that he manages to like persuade and carry off like all of the wise of Athens into following his idiotic plan and destroying the Athenian fleet and likely getting Athens sacked in the process, if not sacking it himself, um, as much as he is this gorgeous pinnacle of human male beauty, Socrates is totally indifferent to him. He has complete self-discipline, as Alcibiades describes it. Socrates is unmoved because, again, Socrates isn't looking for physical beauty. And what's significant here is that while Alcibiades recognizes the beauty within in the case of Socrates, it is apparently super obvious. Like, everybody at this entire uh, symposium has been admiring Socrates, urging him to speak, eager for him to speak, giving him the position of, of uh, honor next to Agathon, like, waiting with bated breath for him to show up, even when he was stuck out in the porch for a few hours. Like, everybody is thrilled to be interacting with Socrates, and Alcibiades is thrilled even more than any of them. Um, he is talking with bated breath about how Socrates was able to resist the harsh conditions while they were at war, how he was willing to undergo, you know, like, starvation without complaint, willing to walk, willing to face trials, willing to endanger his own life for the sake of Alcibiades or for the other soldiers. Like, Socrates could simultaneously stay up all night um, could resist the, the suggestion of, of drink when it was offered to him, and yet still drink everybody under the table when he was in fact drinking. Like, Alcibiades even says, nobody has ever seen Socrates drunk. Like, he can drink everybody else under the table and still be fine, still be perfectly lucid and rational. Um, Alcibiades himself is wildly drunk when he makes his, his speech here. And he expresses that he is just madly, madly, madly obsessed with Socrates. And he is insanely jealous that Socrates is apparently fawning on Agathon now rather than Alcibiades. But notice the difference here. Notice why Socrates rejects Alcibiades. There's this banter right at the end of the speech which is really telling that Alcibiades simultaneously accuses Socrates of like manipulating Agathon and manipulating him, Alcibiades, like driving him insane with love and with lust. How Socrates is somehow simultaneously this old ugly man who should absolutely be in the role of Erastes, but all of these young men, these Eromanoses, are trying to seduce him, like once again reversing the relationship in the way that Pausanias has reversed the relationship and it's considered creepy and weird. But here, because the young men are chasing after Socrates in the way that usually the older men would be chasing after the young men, it's totally acceptable. 
Like, there's all of this depth to what's being done here. And finally, Alcibiades is like, dude, you're doing it on purpose. You're making me insane with lust for you. And Socrates is like, dude, you're doing it on purpose. You're the one who just presented this elaborate description. You're the one who is now interposing yourself between me and Agathon. Obviously, we are both engaged in this battle of wits. Alcibiades is manipulative, manipulative and deceptive and cunning in the same way that Socrates is, but where Socrates uses it for good, using it to educate others, using it to bring out the best in people, using it to, as he describes it, you know, bring forth this great generation, this great offspring, these great poems, these great you know, works of statesmanship, these great artistic and philosophical insights, Alcibiades is instead exploiting his own physical beauty to create evil to manipulate and sort of do like pull the wool over people's eyes to to lie and get away with it because everybody wants to believe him every the two of them are the mirror image of one another where socrates is the silenus this statue that looks ugly on the outside and has beauty on the inside alcibiades is the reverse he looks beautiful on the outside but he is also a silenus and socrates accuses him of this he says that you're beautiful on the outside and have ugliness on the inside when you open it up. The two of them are a strange counterpoint to one another. Um, now, this is just one man's interpretation. This is how I understand it based on what I know of Plato, what I know of the Greek traditions going before, uh, based on what I know of the, the classical treatment here. But notice that in your assignment on the symposium, which will be due in a matter of weeks, um, you were responsible to read one of our two articles from the philosophy of erotic love, either Nussbaum's The Speech of Alcibiades, a reading of Plato's Symposium, or Jerome New's Plato's Homoerotic Symposium. And both of them are going to give you a very different take on this whole dialogue than I have given you. And it is your job to navigate between them. You are going to decide whether your take is right or theirs is right, whether you agree with Nussbaum and New, or whether you have your own takeaway from this based on my discussion or otherwise. Remember, part of what makes the symposium so rich, so complicated, and so you know, eminently studied is that it is presenting a bunch of different perspectives on love, and Plato is being very cagey about what he actually supports as the greatest. Now, using other Platonic dialogues, the general rule of thumb is whatever Socrates says, Plato tends to agree with, but Plato is never that direct. Plato always has other things going on. So the fact that he is presenting Socrates' description of love in, and then sort of letting Alcibiades both simultaneously demonstrate how what diatima has been saying about love while also sort of undermining it and rejecting it presenting socrates as both the figure of love himself like love personified is socrates and yet socrates is dispassionate like there's so much going on here and it is not entirely clear what plato is trying to say so it is your job to figure that out to sort of read over this text Read over the article that you choose to sort of wrestle with and decide what you agree with, what you disagree with. What is your takeaway? What do you think Plato is trying to say about Socrates and Alcibiades, about the historical circumstances that unite them, or about the different philo philosophies that they represent? 
is Socrates the hero to Alcibiades' villain? Or is Alcibiades just presenting us yet another view of love to be contrasted with all of the others and another perfectly viable one? Um, is Alcibiades giving us a view... Is Alcibiades honest, for that matter? Like, remember, he's so passionate, he's so obsessed, he's so breathless in the way that he's talking about it, in a way that none of the other thinkers had been. He is very much a representative of the typical sort of Greek idea of love, being carried away, being seduced, but being seduced by Socrates, um, who we would think is virtuous and good, and therefore wouldn't that mean that Alcibiades, too, is virtuous and good? It's hard to discern here. It's hard to pick it out. It's not 100% clear. You can read it in multiple different ways. Um, and I think Plato was doing this intentionally. That's how love works. Love is the thing that inspires young men to virtue, like Phaedrus is talking about. And it is something that is breathless and obsessive, the way that Alcibiades talks about it. It's something that governs the entire world, the way that Eryximachus talks about it. And it's something beautiful and wonderful when you're experiencing it, the way that Agathon talks about it. It's also the way that Socrates talks about it. This search for a transcendent immortal beauty, this will it want to participate in that immortality, and that wish to be one with that beauty. Um, none of these thinkers are 100% wrong. All of them are getting at some aspect of love here. Um, but what is the total picture? What is Plato actually giving to us? Is Alcibiades meant to be a new you know, perspective on love, every bit as legitimate as the others, or is his perspective twisted? Is it a lie? Is it destructive? Uh, remember, it's going to be Alcibiades who leads Socrates to death, um, according to the historical account, which Plato well knows. Everybody who read this in its original time would have known, would have recognized that Alcibiades is, you know, in his drunkenness, is bringing Athens to the brink of destruction. Um, how much does that factor into the truth or falsehood of what he's trying to say here? Um, so look through this dialogue as you are writing your paper. Look for examples, look for lines, look for hints, look for glimpses of what Plato might be doing, echoes of one writer or another, one speech or another, ways that diatima is sort of anticipated by Alcestis or other examples throughout the text. I am not the final word on this. I'm not even, like, close to the final word on this. I've talked about this you know, this text for three and a half hours on, on these lectures, and I still feel like I've just barely scratched the surface of it. Um, I've studied it for an entire semester, worked on translating it extensively, and I still feel like it's just beyond me in the same way that this whole discussion of love is beyond me. And I suspect that Plato knows this, wants this to be the case. Um, so... For next week, we're switching gears. We're not going to be working with a text nearly as sort of inscrutable. Um, instead, we're going to switch to the uh, Friends, the Friendship book, Other Selves, and we're going to read Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, the two chapters towards the back of the Nicomachean Ethics that deal with friendship. We'll get a very different look at what friendship and love is all about. We'll get a very different sort of attitude and sort of approach, method to doing philosophy. Um, hopefully something way more straightforward than we saw here, if considerably less uh, twisting and, and mysteriously, profoundly, primordially beautiful. Um, so I look forward to talking about it with you.